One and two and three and one and two and three and eins und zwei und drei und eins und zwei und drei. Uh, hi. Oh, um, is this Audition Room 3? Welcome. I am Herr Dave Schilling, one of the senior members of this company. Um, and where is producer Kylie? I was told she would be here for my audition. My dear, you have no formal training of references. You really shouldn't be here at all. And she busy. Uh, seems elitist, but okay. So, what do you have for us today? Uh, well, I thought I'd start with a 25-minute sample of my three-hour solo dance piece based on Jason Derulo's mesmerizing turn in Cats. Good God, man. Why would you ever do that? Wait, hold on. Is this not the audition for Look Who's Talking the Musical? Nine! This is the audition for the greatest remake of all time. And for giving the role to... The 2018 take on the Argento classic, Suspiria. Because this is Galaxy Brains. And today we are discussing all things Suspiria with AEW pro wrestler and horror movie lover, Ruby Soho. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's modern Suspiriorium, Jonah Ray. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive at the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today, we are donning our leotards and trying to desperately touch our toes, which I haven't done in a long time, for the modern dance horror movie classic, Suspiria. Joining us for this terrifying thrill ride is AEW pro wrestler Ruby Soho. But before we sacrifice our sanity at the altar of cinematic theorizing, we have to do a bit of light stretching in a segment we call Logic Brain. Spoilers are on the dance card for tonight, so please make yourself scarce if you've never seen either the original Dario Argento Suspiria or its 2018 remake, directed by Lucha Guadagnino, which I had to practice many times last night to make sure I said correctly. Luca Guadagnino! <laughs> Go leave us a five-star rating and a review. If you do, you'll develop some cool superpowers, just like Susie and Suspiria. Whoa, 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 whoa,
Oh, sorry. I take that back. Someone else gets superpowers in Suspiria. Uh, how about that uh, that old guy that's definitely Tilda Swinton? Jonas, stop, stop it. All right, let's take a tight five to give you a chance to walk away if you haven't seen Suspiria. Kylie, play the Austin Powers theme real fast. All right, welcome back, sisters. Today we are chatting about Suspiria, but isn't that a little vague? You know, because there's two Suspirias. Yes, that's right, Dave. The first Suspiria was directed by Italian horror legend Dario Argento. He developed the idea after reading the essay Suspiria de Profundis by Thomas de Quincey. He'd go on to co-write Suspiria with his partner, Daria Nicolodi. Nicolodi said she, and I quote, fought so hard to have her work on the screenplay recognized. Which is bizarre, since one, Argento was her boyfriend, and two, the story was so clearly told from a female perspective. Nickelodeon would never write another film, and her roles in Argento's movies were increasingly marginalized. Ouch. Suspiria would be the first film in his Three Mothers trilogy, which also includes Inferno. Which is not good. Eh, I make the difference. I don't like it. I don't like it. All right. Uh, and 2007's The Mother of Tears. Also not good. Can't fight you on that. The basic story for both versions of Suspiria is that a young American woman named Susie Banyan moves to Berlin to join the Tanz Dance Academy. I have to say it with those those soft A's, Dave. Tons Dance Academy. <laughs> this is Sprockets. 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 Except the troupe <laughs> led by Madame Blanc and Mother, Mo, Mother Suspiriorum, Helena Marcos, are less interested in dancing and more interested in using Susie as a poor little blood sacrifice to keep Marcos alive. The original 1977 film and the 2018 remake follow that basic plot structure with one massive diversion. In the 77 film, Susie destroys the Academy and runs off into the night. In the 2018 movie, Susie discovers her own power, kills Marcos and her followers, then declares herself the new Mother Suspiriorum in a gruesome, memorable conclusion. What do you ask? To die. A truly incredible sequence with some of the gnarliest kills I've ever seen in a horror film. It's an amazing sequence, and it is exactly how you would have wanted the original to end. Absolutely. Instead of her just kind of being like, well, okay, I guess I'm just going to leave. Well, it's fine. There's just, it's just mayhem. It's just absolute mayhem. <laughs> the original is a classic, sure, and the remake is pretty damn close to that same status. But, hmm, huh? which version of the story is better? To answer that question, we have to journey deeper into the recesses of our minds in a segment called... Vertical brain. The first thing I thought of rewatching the 2018 Suspiria and knowing your tastes in horror films was the question of whether or not Suspiria is a body horror. Yeah, I mean, like when we when we say the term body horror, we think, you know, goopy flesh uh cronenberg you know like uh long live the new flesh but the thing is by this being very much about dance it is really through the body that a lot of the story is told so there, i think at an, uh, on multiple levels this is a body horror yes yeah, some of the grosser moments in this movie are the ones where you just see dakota johnson's body contort in ways that seem unnatural there's that great sequence sort of in the middle of the movie where she tries to dance for the first time and this girl who's like freaking out, wants to leave, and is not comfortable with what's happening at the academy, is up in the, the practice room with the mirrors, and she's being, like, manipulated by Susie, and just her limbs get twisted. I'm almost kind of as grossed out by what goes on with Susie just dancing 
as a, it, 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 what happens with this poor girl who gets contorted and twisted and pisses herself. Are you just jealous of the way that she can move her body? Because, I mean, that, the, the, there was no effects. Yeah, I think so. But that's what I'm saying is that the reality of it is so um, noticeable. It's real. What is happening is her being able to do these amazing things with her body. Yeah. And I think about my doughy, old, <laughs> wrinkly flesh. And I'm like, I could never even dream of that. So the fact that it's something that a real human being is doing is bracing. Yeah. It made me really want to do dance as an exercise. Maybe I should do some exercise, I think is what what uh, I felt watching this movie is maybe I should just get off the couch and stop watching this movie. <laughs> this does get to a point of actual kind of like body horror as I know it, which is like, you know, at the end, that end sequence when you finally meet the gross mother. Mother Marcos. You have the only mother you need here. Death to any other mother. When you meet Mother Marcos, you're like, here's that body. Or here's like the real gross kind of goopy stuff going on. There is a lot of like invasive body stuff. It's like you know, these these women in the school are being kind of forced to push their body to the limit. When those cops show up, their bodies are like, you know, stripped down and made fun of. Even in the end, there's a naked old man. There's a lot of invasiveness. You know, let's put this on the pantheon of body horror. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that poor man who, who's uh, got his pants down and they're making fun of his tiny little penis. That's the scariest part of the movie for me. That was the most foreign part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. There's just a little tiny dick and someone is like, ha, ha, ha. that means it's a European film. Um, I don't like it. It makes me sad because what if someone does that to me when I'm hypnotized? I don't want that. Don't hypnotize me and don't make fun of my penis. Those are the two rules. Yeah, you just cannot worry about it. I mean, sure, we all want that Bill Hader, John Hamm, uh, you know. <laughs> Bill Hader? That's the word on the street. One day we got to do an episode that's just about who's got the biggest dogs in Hollywood. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's for the Patreon. That's for the Patreon. That's our other podcast, Galaxy Dongs. <laughs> we should do that as a segment instead of Galaxy Dads one week. I mean, isn't that the kind of the subtext of Galaxy Dads? <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so the, that, that's what made you uncomfortable with this movie, right? Yeah, well, this is a movie, as you pointed out, that's really about people who are at war with their own bodies. And Susie's greatest gift, besides all of her superpowers, is that she has intense control of her body. And there are the people who get older, their mother Marcos is, is decaying, she needs young flesh. It's interesting. I, I didn't really put that together until I watched it this time, that this is really just a movie about people who are grossed out by their bodies or confused by their bodies or, or need some kind of push to feel like they're okay in their own skin. Which is also really incredible, too, because considering that was essentially the plot of the original and not to say that either movie makes more sense than the other. It is still kind of a very fantastical story. But I understood what was happening more in the 2018 version. It's more human. And I think one of the things that I both love and am confused by with Argento's work is how alien it is and how it really is just about the set pieces and the, the, the kills. And it's like a machine that works 
It's like a, like an Italian car, I guess. Like it kind of works. It kind of does it. You got to constantly fix it because <laughs> these movies are not plotted in a tight way. They're they're very loose and things just kind of happen. But you stick with it because you know you're going to get a beautiful movie with a lot of inventive kills. It's a vibe. Yeah, it's a vibe. Exactly. And the 2018 is not a vibe. It is a full meal of cinema. And that's why I think I like the 2018 one better. Yes. They're both so good. And yes, they're both named Suspiria and they follow the same kind of story. But I've seen the original Suspiria so much. I've seen it like on on a 35 millimeter print that was like pretty, pretty good shape. And like the colors in it are amazing. It's so red. But just the how blown away I was with the 2018 Suspiria. Usually it's like I'll walk out of a movie and go, I go, oh, that was pretty good. And I have to think about it. I walked out of Suspiria going like, Hot damn, what a fucking movie. That was a movie. Yeah, I was charged up. I was excited. And that very rarely happens to me. I guess it happened with me uh, for Dune, where I walked out the first time being like, okay, this is what it's all about. This is what's supposed to happen. This is when somebody, a filmmaker, is truly clicking on all cylinders. And I got to see this again as soon as possible. That's how I felt about Last Night in Soho. Yeah, I still haven't seen that yet. And it's odd to say Suspiria is a movie, but like I think we got like, infiltrated by this idea of art house. And we started using all these other terms to describe movies. Like it's a meditation on grief. It's a tone poem. All these things to get around saying like there's not a sharply told story. Suspiria, the remake, is a nicely told story. Things get wrapped up. There's an epilogue, which is, I think, something that a lot of non-blockbuster like you know blockbuster movies are starting to lose. And that's what I loved about Last Night in Soho. You go and you see the whole story. You're not just left with an idea for you to do the rest of the work. Yeah, I think that that's a lesson for people to learn, hopefully, in the next you know decade of filmmaking is you don't have to make an obtuse or elliptical ending to be artistic. You can just tell a good story and it can be beautifully done and have some craft to it. But let's not dwell on other people's films. Let's talk about why we like the original Suspiria, because there are a ton of things to love about that movie, even if we might like the 2018 one better. And one of the things that I love the most about that original movie is the score by Goblet. I mean, it's so good. It's so, so good. It is amazing. It's huge. And you realize how much work Goblin's doing in the film. There's no reason a girl walking out of an airport and getting into a cab and then driving down the street should be as intense as it is. But when you add in that me, 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 like all that kind of uh, Goblin stuff, it just makes it so intense. Just so you know, if you don't know what Goblin is, because it could just be a word that's like, what is? what are you guys talking about? Goblin was a prog rock group from Italy that Argento got to make the music for his film Deep Red, which is my favorite Argento movie. And he brought them back for Suspiria. And as great as the Deep Red soundtrack is, I think Suspiria, the music they did for Suspiria is the most iconic. They also came back for Tenebrae, which is my second favorite Argento movie. They did a little theme for that movie that ended up being sampled by the French dance group Justice. You remember Justice? That one? That's the only thing you need to remember about Justice. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. Beep, 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 bop, boop. Uh, Justice is essentially the poor man's Daft Punk. Don't worry about them. Go listen to some Goblin, though. Another thing I love about the original Argento movie is the performances. Jessica Harper as Susie is great. 
she, I don't think, really ever had a performance or, or a role as iconic. Scrooged? No, no, that's not her and Scrooge. Do you know who that is? It's Karen Allen. Oh, shit. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the 2018 Suspiria has Dakota Johnson stepping into the role of Susie, but the person who really takes the trophy of the best performance in this movie and maybe one of the most bonkers performances in any movie in the last decade is, of course, Tilda Swinton, who plays three different characters in this movie. And this is something we didn't know. They didn't announce this. This wasn't part of any kind of ad campaign. When the um, therapist first shows up in the beginning of the movie, which is like one of, uh, such an amazingly edited scene. It makes you really uncomfortable, makes you do feel really you know, out of sorts. But like, you know, seeing that, I was like, wait, hold on. Is director Spike Jones playing the role of the therapist? Uh, <laughs> is he working on some of his bad grandpa <laughs> makeup effects? He's tested him out. Yeah, that is Tilda Swinton, folks. Love and manipulation, they, they share houses very often. They are frequent bedfellows. She plays Madame Blanc as herself without makeup. She plays Dr. Josef Klimperer who is a therapist who uh, has a lot of grief and guilt related to the war, to World War II. And he also tries to get to the bottom of the Tans Dance Academy conspiracy. Uh, say it correctly, please. Tans Dance Academy. Rockets. <laughs> Thank you. And she plays Mother Helena Marcos, the ghoul, the demon at the end of the movie. Guadagnino, the director has said that the only way to do this was to to have it be Tilda as all three characters because he saw them as representing the id, the ego, and the superego of Susie's kind of her, her psyche and her brain. A funny thing, when the movie came out, my girlfriend Hallie Kiefer, she was working at Vulture as a, as a blogger and she got a press request to interview Lutz Ebersdorf. Lutz Ebersdorf is the pseudonym that Tilda Swinton used for the credits of Suspiria because she didn't want anyone to know she was playing Dr. Joseph Klimperer. So they went through the whole trouble of making up this fake person and then trying to get people to interview her in character as though he was a real person. <laughs> and I think they were going to kill him off <laughs> at some point. Be like, he died. It was his last film. <laughs> nobody bought it not a soul such an amazing dumb idea like it's that kind of thing where it's you realize when you are shooting a movie even as uh you know seriously toned and artsy as the Suspiria remake you are still just kind of hanging around set all day and thinking of bits and they probably made them <laughs> yeah laugh so hard that they were just we have to we have to do this also just because you uh mentioned your girlfriend let's uh, shout out to the ruined podcast which is a, a horror podcast that yeah ruined is a horror movie podcast just want to give shout outs where shout outs are available absolutely yeah you could you should subscribe to ruined it's a really great podcast where they talk about horror movies all the time we only dabble in horror movies they were born in the darkness as bane said <laughs> it is very funny it is very funny that uh, this like highfalutin director he decided to play a fucking prank on the world like you know it'd be funny if we just like did a jackass prank about some people in the media. It's incredible. What a great idea. An awesome idea, but the ruse was was not successful because every single person who sat down in that theater to watch that movie was like, why is Tilda Swinton dressed up like that old man? Nah. <laughs> I also want to talk about the blood and compare the blood in these two movies because one of the things I love about Italian horror is the blood. It's almost like paint sometimes. It's got this really thick, viscous quality. 
And uh, the blood in this movie is very realistic. And I don't know. I prefer I prefer the like fake costumey blood from these these kind of uh, down market Italian horror films. The bright red. Yes, exactly. It's just like something about it charges me up. But you know, that was like, that wasn't so much intentional. And George Romero talks a lot about this when they were making Dawn of the Dead is that they didn't realize the type of lights they were using and the film stock and the chemicals they were using to you know, develop the film. Because so in real life, apparently the blood looked realistic when they were shooting Dawn of the Dead. And then when they got the dailies back, that's what made it look that bright. And I don't think they, I think there was a lot of that going on back then where they just didn't know the tonal shift that would happen with certain colors. Yeah, you're dealing with film stock as opposed to, you know, a digital intermediate where you can go in and you can, you know, change everything, basically. Like, you can color grade uh, somebody's socks if you want to. You know, back then in the 70s and, and early 80s, what you got on the negative was basically what you got. And you could do some things, but you couldn't really do a whole hell of a lot. It's a different vibe, but I love that blood. There's something about it. It's just nostalgia or, or you know, just the, the kind of heightened reality of it was really appealing to me. That stuff is super fun. And like, um, and Giallo also has its own kind of like, you know, vibe when it comes to the coloring of stuff. And not to say that Suspiria is Giallo. You'll get a bunch of people online saying it truly is not. <laughs> it's not. Doesn't have a slasher villain in it. It's not a Diallo. There's no mystery. Uh, I mean, I'm one of those people too. So yeah, of course, yeah, for sure. This is like a you know, this is a fantasy horror. Yeah, and that was a thing that Argento was doing for a while after this. You know, he went uh, ahead and did Inferno after this and Phenomenon. Phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. Those those were movies that were kind of um, not silly because it's not fair to say these movies are silly per se, but they were more fantastical. The Giallo is a movie that is very grounded in reality. And the killer is someone that you will recognize from the rest of the movie. It's it's always a reveal. There's somebody under a mask or something. A true deformed giallo, meaning like it kind of goes a little long and can be boring at times, but in, all in all is an interesting story and movie is Knife and Heart, which is, I believe, a French film uh, that is a basically a nouveau giallo. Yeah, if your movie is not a little bit boring, you're not making a giallo. It's got to be kind of boring sometimes. That's the rule. <laughs> That's the rule. Look it up. Uh, Suspiria, uh, both versions, even though they're not gialli by definition, are in places a little slow. And that's one of the things that I think unites both of them is this, this sort of languid pace, this mysterious, deliberate pace. A lot of remakes try to make a movie for the time. And they're like, okay, this is a little slow. Like, uh, True Grit was slow and boring, so we're going to have, have more gunplay or something. Whatever it is. I love both versions of True Grit, so don't complain at me. I got to say, I think Suspiria takes the crown because it is both generally faithful to the original and does something completely different with the idea. That's all you can ask for with a remake. I kind of agree, Dave. The, the 2018 Suspiria stands on its own as a horror classic. I truly do believe that. But are we even being fair by comparing the two films? They're so different that it might not really even be worth calling the new one a remake at all. Jonah, it's the same story, I mean, other than the terrorist stuff and the ending. Yeah, but tonally, thematically, they're on different planets. A remake doesn't have to be the same kind of movie. So let's say, I don't know, I remake Forrest Gump as a gritty Vietnam War story. I'm listening. Okay, same story, but deadly serious, poignant, and full of explicit material about racial issues that were under the surface of the original. So full metal jacket, but with Forrest Gump? 
Yes, 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 yes. No, no, that's exactly what it'd be like. So imagine life is like a box of chocolates, but in this case, the chocolate is uh, heroin. And Forrest Gump gets addicted to smack, Jenny style. Okay, maybe a different movie then. Suspiria 2018 is not a remake. It's its own beautiful creature, kind of like Mother Marcos. Wait, do you, do you have a crush on Mother Marcos? No. I'm happily married. That said, she has some very soft pillowy lips. I give her that. <laughs> Jonah, you're in luck <laughs> because I'm actually good friends with Mother Marcos. We had the same agent at UTA. Oh my come God, Dave, no way. No, what? Oh, oh my God. God. Oh my, God. my friend Whoa. wants to meet you. Jonah, such a pleasure to meet you. I loved the Meltdown show. I'd watch it every week in my basement. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, you know, it was it was a real labor of love. Thank you so much for saying that. And Hidden America, an excellent show. I subscribed to CISO just for that. Wow, uh, thank you. I mean, you know, if only there were more demons out there with disposable income, uh, you know, maybe CISO would still be around. You know, I love to take you out for coffee sometime. Oh. Just to pick your brain about comedy. No, no funny stuff. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, I don't, you know, it's like a super busy, like I said, Mystery Science Theater, we're in production right now, so it's kind of busy. I'm going to have to kind of get back to you on that, if that's okay. Just want to connect, you know, no rush. <laughs> okay, guys, while these two network, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, We'll be joined by AEW star Ruby Soho. Take my card. Uh, Dave, please, please. It's in the shape of a baby's hand. She won't stop staring at me, and then she has arms growing out of her arms. It's fine. She's just a fan. A very grotesque fan. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. We could have danced all night, but I think that'd be kind of weird since this is a podcast. So instead, we're going to talk about Suspiria's status as the greatest remake of all time. With horror movie lover and one of the biggest new stars on All Elite Wrestling Dynamite, Ruby Soho. Ruby, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, you're so welcome. And happy Halloween. For those that don't know, we're recording this. Happy Halloween. You guys, it's my favorite holiday. Happy Halloween. You're amongst definitely like-minded people here. We love Halloween on this show. Amazing. Um, I got to start out with some wrestling stuff because uh, I am a nerd. You came over to AEW just a few months ago. Your first singles match was for the championship against Dr. Britt Baker in front of a sellout crowd, like a crazy boisterous crowd at Arthur Ashe Stadium in Queens. Was that the biggest moment of your career? So honestly wholeheartedly was the most nerve wracking experience. I felt like there was a lot riding on it as far as, you know, I'm just coming back to this new company and coming back to wrestling after, you know, a, a short hiatus. And I knew that I had a lot to prove to myself, to wrestling fans. Like when I showed up at all out, they were really excited to see me. And I, I, I was so excited to be there and, and their reaction was, one that I will never forget. And then when my title match came, I knew that was kind of the time for me to be like, this is why you were excited because I know what I'm capable of. So it was one of those things where I was like, okay, it's time, it's time to do or die, you know? And uh, there was a lot of emotions that went on with that match. And I was very honored 
to be able to be a part of it, even though I didn't win. It was a really great experience. (laughs) (laughs) As someone who has been a fan for a long time and also, you know, for a, a short period of time worked in the wrestling industry, I can see when someone really cares. And every time you come out still, like even though you've you've been on the show now a couple months or so, it still seems like you're having the best time of your life. And that's really gratifying to watch as an observer, as a fan, to see how meaningful it is, not just to you, but to everybody on that roster who's just having a ball doing pro wrestling. I have said on multiple occasions that one of the reasons we have the amazing fans that we do is because our fans are witnessing the most authentic version of ourselves and they relate to that and they admire that and they enjoy that thoroughly because you know anybody can see when somebody's trying too hard to be something that they're not and i think that that's one of the reasons our fans are so incredible and i'm so grateful for it and i'm having the absolute time of my life doing the thing that I love that I'm falling back in love with because of AEW. It's impossible for me not to reciprocate that energy because they are truly so amazing. So everything that you see, that smile on my face that creeps out and it does help that I get to come out to Ruby Soho (laughs) by Rancid. Like it does help that that song is so rad. Yeah. That smile is genuine and because I am genuinely enjoying this so much. It's great to see and I'm excited to see what you have coming next. And that brings me to my next question, which is let's um, subtly transition over to Suspiria in the most professional way possible because I am a professional. I feel like there's a bit of similarity between a dance troupe and a locker room of wrestlers. Oh, I like I like that. Yeah. <laughs> How does the AEW locker room compare to the Tans Dance Academy in Suspiria? Dave, say it right. Tans Dance Academy. Rockets. Sorry, we. This is. Thank you. This is a thing that he's really like latching on to. I, I don't agree, but that's fine. I'm guessing no satanic rituals in pro wrestling. But what are the similarities in like a group of creative people being together in a small enclosed space all the time? Right. I mean, no satanic rituals that I've seen. I wouldn't put it past anything in wrestling these days. But <laughs> <laughs> I believe the thing that I can sense the most is the competitive nature, especially within women women's spots and even in dance as far as taking the lead and everything like that the spots are very few and far between so women's competitive nature is heightened because of that because there are so many less spots for us as women so we have to fight that much harder and to grind and claw that much more. And so that competitive nature that you kind of see within the context, there are some people who take it more seriously than others. And you see that a lot within the context of a group setting. But at the end of the day, you all have to kind of play a specific role within the dance in order for it to be a completely full and beautiful piece of art. And wrestling shows are no different. Like everybody has kind of a specific role to make the the piece of art of the show itself, you know, something beautiful for everybody to see. And it doesn't really work without those supporting characters even, but everybody wants to be the lead. Like, so it's very difficult to kind of find your place, but also to stay hungry. Yeah, I think I think of you as a Susie Banyan of pro wrestling and that you uh, have risen through the ranks to be the star. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I know you're being uh, like kind of just analogous with the uh, the dance thing, but like it did make me think that is there 
just rewatching this Asperia maker, just like how violent dance can be, but how like choreographed everything can be. Do you have a dance background or do other people have that you know that Russell have a dance background? I do not have a dance background. I mean, I did uh, some tap dancing when I was like, you know, five or six. I did a mean recital one time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I did a uh, musical theater when I was young. Oh, right. Yeah. So I guess, you know, in that sense, I did. I had a little bit of dance, maybe not like um, necessarily to that degree. Quite a few of, you know, former coworkers and friends of mine had dance backgrounds. And it's very interesting to see them implement elements of that and how you can kind of almost tell sometimes, especially with in terms of balance in when they move and how they move, they move very fluidly and they're able to to balance in ways I, I, I can barely walk a straight line, like let alone, you know, I mean, if, <laughs> but then it's also cool to see where they're able to implement it into a more violent way. But it's also cool in, in many aspects where because wrestling is such a melting pot and we all come from different walks of life, how people implement certain parts of their background into their own personal style. All right on. Before we started talking on Mike, we were talking a little bit about the feminist sort of underpinnings of at least specifically the 2018 Suspiria. The the original maybe is more of just a straight ahead kind of horror thriller. It was co-written by Dario Nicolodi, who was Dario Argento's girlfriend at the time. But he kind of put her to the side after this movie was made. And she would always say before she passed away that she had to fight for the credit that she got on that movie. So I wonder for you watching the original, do you feel like it was a feminist story as much as the 2018? I definitely think that just to see the what's black and white is there are men in the original and there are none in the other one, which I think, honestly, I think one of the things that I liked about the, you know, the lack of that is like in the remake, it was very apparent that the dance was the priority to these women. Like, the drive to impress Madame Blanc, like the drive to be the best was the main priority. And in my opinion, in, in the original, it seemed as though, you know, you could see that the other women were what you would see your typical, like young, maybe teenage or early adult woman to be infatuated with, which is boys and making friends and things like that. There are other priorities, other things that are coming into play. So the other thing that I kind of noticed is the women were victims of the house and of the, obviously the black magic that was going on with inside the house. They were victims of it as opposed to in the newer one, it seemed like they were almost like enveloping that magic and they were becoming like the insane with power kind of thing, like where it was almost like intoxicating them. That's the word I'm looking for. So instead of being the victim, which is, you know, such an, a common occurrence within women in the film industry, it was more so like empowering them. Yeah. One of the things I really enjoy about the 2018 movie is that the Tans Dance Academy coven of women. Rockets. They just kind of sit around like smoking cigarettes and reading the newspaper all day and then have these like serious conversations about black magic. Where it's like, ah, well, maybe we should sacrifice this one or like, I don't know. But they're just like, it's very domestic. Even the cleanup at the end of the movie, cleaning up the bodies and the blood, like it's just like, it's so matter of fact. Like it's like, hurry up. We got other shit we got to do. Super nonchalant. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's almost a, a collective kind of utopian vibe to how they live together. You're like, oh, I could enjoy that, right? And we all just kind of hang out and we take care of each other. We wash each other's dishes. We go to the, the movies together. We eat dinner together. But then we also do black magic on the side. Yeah. <laughs> it is really interesting, as you pointed out, no men in that movie at all. The only male character you see is played by Tilda Swinton, Dr. Klimperer. I need you guys to understand. When I saw the remake, I didn't know that that was Tilda Swinton. And so when I saw the psychiatrist, I knew that he had some form of like, like it was almost done so much so, so that you knew that this was not the man, like there was makeup on him. So you had to look up like, who is this actor? And then I I went on the journey of like looking up who he was in the credits, not being able to find him. And then like seeing the news articles, I get excited. I say this on like podcasts that have nothing to do with this movie. <laughs> I will still bring, find a way to bring it up because it's the most amazing and like Easter egg thing that I have ever heard. And it just blew my mind. We mentioned this earlier in the episode before you came on, but they were trying to get her to do press in character as the actor who played Dr. Klemperer. Oh, really? And then there was a whole thought around killing him off and being like, this was his first and only movie role. And of course, I, I, I'm not trying to brag by saying that I knew it was Tilda Swinton. I was just like, mm, this is not right. I bet it is. And then it ended up Sounds being... Sounds like a brag to me, guys. I don't know about you. <laughs> no, no, I... I'm one of the most uh, humble people in the world. <laughs> right, Jonah? Right? Right? Nope. <laughs> one of my favorite parts of the movie, for sure. And she also plays Mother Marcos. I just found that out today. <laughs> it's incredible, the performance that she gives as all three characters, the grossest, most deformed monster at the end. And of course, this, this really interesting, complex Madame Blanc in the rest of the movie. And there's a great line, her and Susie, uh, Dakota Johnson's character, are talking about the, the dance, the first dance. Susie says something about it being sexual, in a way. And Madame Blanc, Tilda Swinton's character, says, were you thinking about boys? And she says, no, I was thinking about animals. <laughs> and I was like, this is both gross and I understand exactly what she's saying. Yeah. This is a movie that is not about people caring about boys. Mm -mm. Sexuality and all of that stuff is just like, that's not the point. This is a movie about women and women's issues and yeah. women working together as a collective and, and how women's psychology is something that we don't explore in movies. Do you feel like there's any movie in your, your film going history that comes close to this in terms of telling these kinds of women's stories accurately? Not one that I can think of right offhand. Cause like I saw, I saw this movie for the first time, probably I want to say like three months ago or so. Like it was, it was fairly recent. The thing that I love about the, just the line that you said is it's more primal, like animalistic kind of, instead of like the sexual desire that's now inherently been like a marketable thing with women where it's like, it's become more of a, something, I guess, dirty in, in a way, but like in this one, it's, it's so much more empowering, like this primal animalistic, like mother-like energy that she's possessing within this first dance that I really like. I also, something that I noticed that maybe it's not meant to be this way, but like in the original, the, the woman who plays essentially the headmistress, the difference in them and their energy. I feel like inherently as women, when women are successful, successful women are portrayed as bitches. Like immediately, like they have to be these tyrant women that these other women fear. But in Madame Blanc's success and, and how she's presents herself as very maternal and like 
she carries herself in a way that you're like, these girls aren't afraid of her. They just admire her and they want to be around her and they want her to care about them. There's so many subtle things that maybe you don't pick up on that I think are so powerful within you know, the context of women in film that I think is just really, really well done. I really like this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we all do. Yeah. I mean, there's there's certainly something to be said to go back to your point about the dearth of of men in this movie is that there aren't men reacting to the women. Men are not saying anything about the way women behave, right? No one's there to, as you said, call someone a bitch or uppity or stepping out of line or anything like that. Because there aren't any characters to do that. So without men reacting to how women behave, women can just behave naturally. And I think that's such a great way to put that, by the way, like without men reacting to the way women behave, women can just behave without being told that they're acting some kind of one way or another. Yeah, I want to draw another parallel to wrestling here because I think in the history of pro wrestling, women for many years were given stories that were about what men were doing or like they were, you know, valets. Obviously Miss Elizabeth was one of the greatest female characters of all time, but she was so connected to a male figure. And that's what I love about AEW is that the women's stories are stories about the women and their desires and their aims to succeed. And there isn't that kind of like, oh, well, this is really just about them fighting over a man. I can't speak for you, but I would imagine that that's probably a really great thing to be able to, to tell your stories the way you want to tell your stories. Oh, it's beautiful. It's it's really, honestly, it's amazing. It's so many times that I've seen things like this. It's I've seen women's storylines that are basically, this is what the average man thinks that women fight about. We fight about who's prettier, who has the better guy. It's just super one-dimensional to me. One of the things I love about AEW is like we are in sometimes in storylines that can be, this could be a male storyline. This could be a female storyline. It doesn't have to significantly be just a female storyline. So we can really dive deep into the complexity of our characters. We are not these just simple one dimensional, like surface level people. We are women with desires and with morals and with wants and needs and things that like people can't get to know us as performers if we're in one dimensional storyline. So I think it's very empowering and it gives you so much more room to explore your character and find out things about yourself. And I've learned so much about myself, who I am, about who I want to represent in the last couple months, just because I have that freedom. And it's a really beautiful feeling. That's a great point because I think Susie in the remake has the power. She's always had the power and then she discovers it through this trial by fire. And that's exactly what you were saying. You know, those are the points that you're making. And uh, I personally hope that you will be the final girl in the TBS championship tournament on AEW Dynamite and Rampage. Oh, that was good. That transition. Wow. I know I'm a pro. (laughs) I'm a professional broadcaster. Wow. This is what I that do. That was impressive. Thank you. Kudos. Kudos. Yeah, you don't have to do any promoting. <laughs> I'll do it all for you. I appreciate that. This was so fun. You are the best. Thank you so much for joining us. Guys, this is a blast. Yes, yes. I think uh, we got to have you back very soon. Please, please. This honestly, I'm going to say this. This was one of my favorite interviews I have ever done. 
Oh, wow. I okay. have thoroughly enjoyed this. I, it just like, it was, it was very empowering to me and women's empowerment. If I can talk about it, I'm, I, I'm, I'm all about it. So I, it was two of my favorite things. So I appreciate you guys very much for letting me, let me talk about it. That's rad. Thank you again. This was, this was a pleasure. Of course. You are well aware by now that each week we wrap up the show with a galaxy brain take from one of our listeners. Here's Pat's take on Venom. Hey, this is Pat. I want to talk about Tom Hardy's performance as Venom. I was watching him and I noticed he's very sweaty. He always looks very uncomfortable. Like maybe he has a, a tummy ache or maybe diarrhea, which got me to thinking that maybe uh, as portrayed in the film, Venom is a metaphor for living with IBS. So uh, discuss. I just got to say it before you do, Joda. Holy shit. That is an amazing take. And the pun intended on the shit part. Yes, I have never thought of this before. I am intrigued by your idea that this man is constantly in physical pain and needs to go to the bathroom. It does feel like he's got something up there that needs to come out. Maybe it's not a poop. Maybe it's a symbiote. But yeah, he's... uh, He's sweating. He's greasy. And the only thing that's going to make his tummy feel a little bit better is a little bit of chocolate. Let me get some chocolate. Oh, please, Eddie, let me have some chocolate. Oh, Eddie, we got to go. We got to go right now, Eddie. You got to take a big fat dump, Eddie. Come on, buddy. Uh, Yeah, I don't think chocolate's good for your butt. But uh, hey, you know what? That's fine. (laughs) If you have IBS out there and you know whether or not this is accurate to your experience... (laughs) please call us at 213-570-8069. It's also listed in our show notes. Or maybe you don't want to talk about taking a dump. You could call us about next week's episode topic, Marvel's Eternals. So give us a call. Leave us a voicemail with your take about poop or about movies, TV shows. But whatever you do, please, for the love of God, just leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You only have yourself to blame if this show goes away. You. It's your fault. You, the person sitting there doing nothing. Okay? You talking to me? Not you. No, them. The listeners. I'm breaking the fourth wall, Jonah. <laughs> I know. It's cool. It's like a uh, house of cards. Who's in that? That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we are covering the hotly anticipated newest addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, The Eternals. Hey, uh, one of the guys on this Eternals poster looks pretty recognizable. Yeah, that's the guy from Game of Thrones. No, 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 no not him. Uh, not him. Oh, sorry, the, the, it was the other guy from Game of Thrones. No, not him either. Yeah, I don't know. There's lots of guys in this movie, like so many guys. It's a huge cast. Uh, maybe you should check the credits. I don't know. I don't want to do all the work for you. Okay, well, how about the work that I'm going to do is I'm going to read these credits. Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikishin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant, and Russ Frustick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnizek, who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm Dave. Take us away, Mother Marcos. Destination unknown. Ruby, 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 so Destination unknown. Jonah, I'd still really love to connect.